this morning. And uh, I've been excited about preaching this message for two weeks now. The Lord sort of changed my direction last week, and uh, He never changes His. Sometimes He changes mine. Somebody say amen to that. But uh, this message has burned in my heart now for two weeks. I believe there is a great truth to be grasped and appropriated from this passage of Scripture. I believe that often it is eclipsed by the chapter prior to it, previous to. For in chapter number 38, Hezekiah has fallen ill, and uh, the Lord heals Hezekiah, and he pushes the sundial back, gives him more years for his life. No doubt you have heard many times how that God answers prayer and of the the great prayer victories in the life of Hezekiah, one of which was that it extended his life. But the, Hez- uh, the, the life of Hezekiah, sadly, does not end on a good note, but it ends on a bad note. And in Isaiah chapter 39, we have a, a story that is related to us about one of the last things that happened in his reign. And sadly, it was probably one of the worst things that happened in his reign. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 39. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. And we'll read the entire chapter together. The Word of God says, At that time Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures, there was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come, that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store, until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Look back at verse number 3. We'll read this verse and then pray. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men? From whence came they unto thee? Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your precious Word. Lord, I pray now that You would help us as we gather around the bread of life, that You might break it and feed us. Lord, sometimes there are things in our life that must be addressed, must be dealt with. Lord, we just ask, we know it's an act of mercy and grace for You to deal with us. So, Father, we ask that You, through the person of the Holy Ghost, would speak to our hearts this morning, that You'd deal with us, Lord, that You would convict us, that You'd comfort us. Lord, that You would have Your will and way in our lives this morning. I pray if there's any here under the sound of my voice that 
are lost and undone, dead in their trespasses and sins, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and of God. I pray that this morning they would see their need of Calvary. Lord, that they'd come to You. I know You wait for them, Lord. I know You long to save them. So I pray, Lord, that they'd see before it's everlasting too late that You are their only hope and You are the only answer. Father, we love You. We thank You for what You have done, what You will do. And we do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we read this story in the life of Hezekiah, there is a particular phrase that struck me as I read it, and it is of great interest to me this morning, for it hearkens to another passage of Scripture with which most of us are very familiar. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone. I wouldn't want anybody to not be able to raise their hand and feel like they should. But most of us probably in this room would have to acknowledge that we are just lightly familiar with the chapter that we've read, maybe totally unfamiliar with the chapter that we've read. This is not the kind of chapter that you find printed in funeral bulletins. This is not the kind of chapter that you find cross-stitched on wall hanging. This often is not the kind of passage that you're going to find taught in a children's Sunday school class, even in an adult Sunday school class. And yet, as we read this, there is a very familiar phrase that's found several times throughout the Word of God. And in fact, we sort of preached on it a little bit two weeks ago when we preached out of Luke chapter 15. It's found in verse number 3. Whenever Isaiah asks Hezekiah who these men are and why they are here, of course, we know that they are from Babylon. At this time, the nation of Judah was not in bondage to Babylon as yet, but that time was coming. And uh, he asks him, says, where are these men from? And Hezekiah looks at him and says something very interesting. Look at it at the end of verse 3. He says, they are come from a far country unto me. Can I just propose something to you this morning? You know, we preach on the prodigal son a lot. I preached on it a couple weeks ago. I think, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good passage of Scripture. But, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about all the prodigals that we have out in the world. But as I sit here today, I I, I am a young man, I am 28 years old, I am a pastor, I am a husband, I am a father of a young child, and I look and I survey the world around me. Can I just suggest to you this morning that we have a bigger problem than the prodigals in the far country? You see, the real problem that we're dealing with is not that we've got prodigals in the far country. The real problem is we've got the far country in the Father's house. You see, we want to try to pick up the pieces after it's all fallen apart. Did it ever dawn on you that that prodigal son must have heard about the far country from somebody? Did it ever dawn on you that that prodigal son, it may have been a servant, it may, who knows, it may have been his older brother, but somewhere along the line, that prodigal son must have began to hear lavish tales about a far country where all the lusts and desires of a young man could be met and fulfilled, where a life of freedom and where a life of pleasure just lay waiting for him. And he bought hook, line, and sinker, the devil's lie, and went out and wrecked his life. Could I say to you this morning that... It might be a lot better if instead of trying to pray him out of the far country, we just got the far country out of our house in the first place. You see, Hezekiah comes to a place where these men, uh, he, uh, listen, God had done a great thing in his life. You ever stopped and thought about why these men were interested in Hezekiah? 
That was the first thing that dawned on me. There were a lot of kings in ancient Bible lands. There were a lot of kings in that day. Uh, the kingdom of Assyria, of course, the empire of Assyria was running rampant throughout the world. And in fact, they had just been at Hezekiah's doorstep at Jerusalem. Uh, why was it that they didn't send emissaries to Assyria? There were uh, the Edomites in that day, uh, which still had some sort of existence and some sort of prominence. They were a, a hill people. Amen. That's what that's what we are around here. We're Edomites. Somebody say amen to that. Hill people. Amen. And they were hill people. And they uh, lived in a fortified stronghold up in the Judean mountains. Why didn't they send emissaries there? Certainly down in Egypt, sort of that bumbling, benevolent giant of the ancient world, there were many mysteries and many wonders that they could have gone and seen. Why was it that they came to Hezekiah's doorstep? Can I suggest to you today, we better get it in our head that the world has an interest in wrecking our family and in wrecking our young people. Now listen, you may say, oh, that's foolishness. Well, go ahead and be a fool then. Because the reality is this, if the devil can get your kids... If he can get your grandkids, if he can get your spouse, if he can get your family, your siblings, he'll do it if he can. He has an interest in wrecking your life. You may not believe that. And I think that's part of the reason. You know, we grow up in a generation where nothing's a big deal, don't we? Nothing's a big deal. You know, your head's on fire. I'll worry about it tomorrow, you know? We live in a generation where nothing is a big deal. Nobody has any responsibility. Nobody has any foresight. Let me tell you something. Our young families are falling prey to this. Now, the devil, he don't even have to fight it to get into most homes. He walks right in through the television. He walks right in through the stereo speakers. He walks right in through the friends. He just waltzes into our homes and takes captive our children. We better get serious about this thing. or We're going to wind up with some prodigals in the far country. We better get serious about this thing. We're going to wind up with some prodigals out in the hog slop in the far country. I would listen. I'd a lot rather uh, protect my children right now than have to pray them out of the far country later on. Somebody say amen to that. There was an interest that they rendered to Hezekiah. Just by way of introduction, I think there's three reasons, basically, that they were interested in him. And this, I think, parallels the three reasons the world is interested in you. Now, you say, the world isn't interested in me. The world isn't interested in Who are my kids? Who am I? I'm nobody. There's somebody that the devil can wreck, and that's why he's interested. There were three real reasons that they were there, I believe. I would say that, number one, they were there because of the wonder that God had done. In fact, they say as much. They say, listen, we're here because we heard what God did for you. And we want to hear something about it. Can I say this? That one of the reasons the devil is interested in wrecking us is because of the wonder that God has done in our life. If we're born again, if we're saved by the grace of God, you understand that just as Hezekiah, the sundial was a ticking down. Death was surely waiting for him. But the gracious, merciful hand of God stayed death's icy grip, rolled back the sundial and breathed life into his sick and dying body. Boy, what a picture of what God did for you and me. We were dying. In fact, we weren't just dying, neighbor. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God spoke to our heart. God stirred us within. And God showed us His love through Calvary. And God awakened us from the grave of our iniquity and saved us by His grace. And for that very reason, listen this morning, for that very reason, the devil wants to wreck your family. He want, Listen, he ain't worried about the kids that ain't saved because he's already got them. 
He ain't worried about the husbands that ain't saved. He ain't worried about the wives that ain't saved. But he's trying to walk to and fro and wreck those who are saved by the grace of God. You understand that the devil has no hope of salvation? And there is a venomous hatred within him towards those of us that know the grace of God. I'd say because of the wonder that God had done. I'd say because of the work that God was doing that these Babylonian emissaries knocked on his door. You see, I had mentioned that Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, he had already been down Hezekiah's way. Actually, he hadn't came, but he sent his general by the name of Rabshakeh. And at that time, he was off battling, I believe, Egypt it was. So he sends Rabshakeh. He says, we're just going to walk right through Jerusalem. I hear they got a lot of treasure down there. Isn't it something? Listen, isn't it something? That there's some enemies that we'll fight tooth and nail to protect ourselves from, but then there's others we'll let walk right through the front door. Isn't that funny? There are certain things, little pet, little pet sins, that if those come knocking on our door, well, that ain't a big deal. Isn't it funny how it works? Sennacherib had been, or Rabshka had been at the front door. You know what Hezekiah did? He took that letter of threatenings and he laid it before the God of Israel. You've read the story. You've heard it preached on. He prayed, and the angel of the Lord slew the army of the Assyrians. And you know what they wanted to find out? They wanted to find out, listen, what is it about Hezekiah that God's doing such a great work down there in Jerusalem? You know, part of the reason he's interested in wrecking your family, because God wants to do something big with your family. Let me say that again. I need a little help right there. The, the reason the devil is after your family is because God is also after your family. You know why? Listen, you look at that little child and you wonder what lays ahead for the future. Understand that it's not graven in stone. If you give that child to the devil, then heartache and sorrow awaits them. But if you can, like Hannah of old, give that child back to the Lord God of heaven and pray and beg God to do something in their life and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, well, God, my friend, has big things for that child. Listen, there's preachers come from somewhere. Missionaries come from somewhere. Pastors' wives come from somewhere. Bible teachers come from somewhere. You think it couldn't be your child? See, that's the problem. Is we think we think both sides ain't going to be our kid. We think that. Listen, we think there's no way they're going to wind up in the gutter, but there's no way they're going to wind up in God's work either way. And the fact is, they could wind up in either of them. And we better get it through our head that what we do has a lot to say about that. I'd say that they came knocking on his door because of the work that God was doing. And the devil wanted to stir and wanted to mess that up and wanted to throw a wrench in God's work. But I would say that one of the reasons they came to this door was because of the welcome they were given. Why did they come to this door instead of other doors? Well, I think they knew that Hezekiah, he'd swing that door wide open. Now, stop and think about how subtle the devil is. When Rabshakeh, when he comes trying through fear to conquer... Hezekiah prays and asks God, and God delivers. But when the Babylonians, when they come in through flattery, try to conquer, Hezekiah swings the door wide open and says, Come on in, fellas. I've just been waiting for you. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. There's a lot of people in this room, no doubt, got children, grandchildren, loved ones that are out in sin that breaks your heart, and it wasn't your fault. I'm sure there's some. But understand this, too, <laughs> that a lot of young people wind up in that shape because we allow things in our homes and families and lives. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I would not want to burden anyone who is not at fault. I would not want for it to lay heavy on anyone 
who genuinely, it is of no fault of theirs that their child is out of the will of God or is unsaved or is far away from the house of God. You know me. You know I would not do that. But I want you to listen to me this morning. There's a price we all must pay. we got young families in this room. And their children are not even out of their house yet. Their young people are not down in the far country yet. So listen, sir. Listen, ma'am. Excuse me. I don't mean to bring tears to your eyes. But I must warn. I must warn. I must warn these young families that if they don't get it together and get sold out to Jesus Christ, that their kids could wind up in the far country. Now, whatever you have to do to reconcile, make yourself feel better between you and God. But the lives of our young people, I think about it all the time. All the time. Think about all the little children running around here. You know what you see? You, you see these young people running around. You see snotty noses. You see sticky hands. You see whooping and hollering uh, Indians running around <laughs> wild. But let me tell you something. When I look at these young people, I look at the youth group in the next five years. I look at the ones, listen, you know what I see when I see these young people? I see what you used to see when you looked at your kids. And some of you now, you wonder where they're at. Some of them are serving God. Some of them out in the world. And listen to me, I, I wasn't here at that time. You had a good man of God that was, but I'm here for that generation. I'm here for those young people. I will not, I will not, I will not fail to warn them and their families of the imminent danger and the walking and roaring lion that is just waiting to rip their life into pieces. You give him a welcome, he'll walk right in. You hold hands with the world, it'll wreck your life, and it'll wreck your kids' lives. It's more than just you in this thing now. We better get it together. I see the interest that they rendered. They come to the door of Hezekiah, and what does Hezekiah do? He opens the door to them, and I want you to notice this. Notice the inventory that he revealed. Now, what happened here? Look at verse number 2. The Bible says this, And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them, and he showed them three things. Now, notice this. He showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ornament and all the house of his armor. Can I say this? Yes. Let me ask you this question. What's at risk when we play with the world? What is at risk? When we, when we compromise with the world, when we let our young people look and act and dress and behave and go to the things that the world goes to and be the way the world... What is at stake in our families? Can I say, number one, our service is at stake. He showed them the silver and gold. You know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of a passage where Paul says this, uh, that none other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And he said uh, that we're building on that foundation. He says some of us were building wood, hay, and stubble, and some of us were building gold and silver and precious stones. And he's speaking of the rewards due to our service for the Lord Jesus Christ that one day we won't stand ashamed before Him. You know what Hezekiah did when he allowed the world in? All thought of serving God. Gone. You ever stop and think about it? Listen, it don't mean much. It don't mean much to come to church. It don't mean much to tell a Bible. It don't mean much to claim you're a Christian. When you don't have your family in order, when your life is in pieces, when your young people are, are, are out in the middle of the world. Listen, what's the point of all this if it can't change lives? What's the point of all this? All the service in the world doesn't mean anything. I've seen lots of preachers, and I've made my mind up about this, and I hope God will give me grace and strength for it. I've seen a lot of preachers, and I'm sure some of you have seen a lot of preachers, that they had a great ministry, but they lost their family. You ever seen that happen? 
Uh, listen, they, they, they uh, worked and labored and, and suffered and sacrificed. And all the while, well, there's outreaching people, and that's noble, and that's commendable work. But they had youngins at home. They had uh, little ones at home that wound up because Daddy was never there, because he was always gone. They wound up out in the middle of the world. You've seen it. I've seen it. Listen, I've just made up my mind with God as my helper. My family is my first ministry. My family is my first ministry. My family is my first ministry. Noah, when he built the ark, he built it for the world, but he's building it for his kids. That's the primary thing. We're trying to reach our young people. Listen, all that service don't mean anything if you allow the world in and allow it to take its roots. He said the silver and gold. Then you know what he said? He said all the spices and precious ornaments. You know what that made me think about? I, I would say that his service was at risk. His service was made vulnerable. His service was exposed. But I'd say this to you, that his supplications were made vulnerable. When you read in the Word of God, spices and ointment, as they work and correlate to the, to the work of the temple, they are invariably connected with the prayers of God's people. The book of Revelation speaks about some spices and uh, that were uh, burning there in the presence of God. And, and uh, John asked, what are these things? What are these things? And the Lord said, these are the prayers of the saints that are offered continually. Let me say this. When we get in the world, the first thing that goes is our prayer life. Because most of us ain't enough of a hypocrite to pray to God when we know we're not right. If we were, we'd be down there counting rosaries. I'm, everybody all right? Is that not the truth? Most people in this room are not hypocrite enough to pray to God and know things aren't right in their lives. You know what we do when things don't get right? We just quit praying. We just quit praying. Well, let me tell you something, man. The devil's got you conquered when he scares you from the prayer closet. The righteous, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We are exposed to his fiery darts when we are not able to pray. One of the first things that goes... I believe if my prayer life had died, I'd check up. And I'd ask myself, what killed it? If my prayer life has died, I believe I'd find a place on this altar and I'd get with God and say, why has my prayer life died? And I'd get it right before it's too late. Then he says this. You know what? He, he took him in. Think about how dumb this is. All right? I know that's not eloquent. I know that's not preferred. I know that, but think about how dumb. Think about how stupid this was. All right, there, we got we got families in the church. They try to teach their kids not to say stupid. That's tough around here. Somebody say amen, because pastor says it most of the time. Think about how dumb he showed him his armor. He showed him his armor. He took them. He let them count the chariots. He let them count the swords and the spears. He showed them the suit of armor that he should have been wearing when the enemy was at his gates. He should have been wearing that when Babylon knocked on his door. But instead he comes in he says, let me show you something. You know what was exposed? His strength was exposed. You know how we're to stand in this wicked day? We're to put on the whole armor of God. That's how we're supposed to stand. We're not doing that. We're not going to stand. You say, how do you know that? Because if we didn't have to do it, God wouldn't have told us to do it. He says, put on therefore the whole armor of God that, that ye may be able to withstand in the day of evil. In other words, if we don't put it on, we're not going to stand. If we don't apply these things to our life and we allow the devil to come in, you know what we do? We show him every single chink in the armor and every single weakness that we've got. You know, that's what happens, right? When we, when we go out and live in sin, we're just showing the devil the sin we like. 
There's some sin that don't appeal to me. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, sodomy is a sin. Amen? It's a sin. It don't appeal to me. Somebody say amen. Right? But now there's some other things in my life, things that might appeal to my flesh, things that might appeal to my nature, things that might appeal to my heart and my mind. And when we live in sin and when we let the world in, we're just showing Satan what we have an appetite for. We're showing him where to attack. <laughs> I think about what First Peter says, 5, 8, where he says, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil has a roaring lion. What does he do? Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know what I think about? And I've said it several times as we've talked through in Apollo's court. I think about a caged animal. Because you know he is caged. He can't get in your life. I understand he's walking to and fro through the air. But I'm talking about in your life, he is a caged animal. He can't get to you unless God allows it or unless you allow it. He's a cage, but you know what I imagine? I imagine walking up and down, just looking for a weak point in that cage. Somewhere where he can wiggle through just a little bit. Somewhere where he can get a little bit of a foothold. Somewhere where he can get that big paw and those dangerous claws through to try to grab at you. He's just walking up and down, testing and waiting in your life. You know how Christ said it to Peter? He said, Simon, Simon, uh, Satan hath desired to have you that he may what? That he may sift you as wheat. He said, Simon, Satan thinks you're a hypocrite. And he's out to prove himself right. And he's going to test your life. And he's going to shake you. And he's going to throw you. He's going to stomp you. And he's going to do everything he can to prove that you're not what I say you are. Let me tell you something. We better get it through our heads that when we allow the world into our life, we rob ourselves of the spiritual strength to stand against the wiles of the devil. We notice the inventory he revealed. Notice the impact that resulted. This is interesting. And believe it or not, I'm almost done. Somebody say amen to that. I lead that choir. I just ain't got enough preaching, me, amen. Look at verse number six. Of course, Isaiah comes to him and says, "Who are they?" In verse four. Then said he, "What have they seen in mine house?" Hezekiah answered, "All that is in my house have I have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them." Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, "Hear the word of the Lord of hosts." Says, this is what's going to happen because you've done this. Notice this. Number one, he says, "Behold, the days come that all that is in my house." And that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Now thy sons which shall that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Let me say the first thing he tells me, he says, Hezekiah, your treasures are going to become trophies. He says they're going to take everything that's in your house. Everything that you've labored for. Everything that you've worked for is going to be nothing but a, but a trophy of sin and iniquity and just a bragging point for the devil to gloat over. He's going to take everything that you've got. Let me tell you something. We all know those stories. We all know those stories. Oh, yeah, I remember brother and sister so-and-so. They used to love God. They used to be faithful in church. Say things like, well, they used to drive a van or they used to, they used to work in the kitchen or they used to teach a Sunday school class, whatever it might be. You say, where are they now? You say, well, that's the sad thing about it. They're out of church. They're gone. They've left. They're out of the will of God. You know all that is, right? You know that's nothing but somebody sitting around going, if that's what church is, I don't want no part of it. All that they had labored for, all that they had worked for, that life that God had invested in, is now just a trophy for Satan to gloat over. wonder how many young people are sermon illustrations on this Sunday morning. This Sunday morning, I wonder across this city how many preachers are standing up and saying, I used to know a young person, and on it goes. About a tragic life 
and parents with broken hearts and tears that have been shed and money that's been spent, a life that's been wasted, all because they let the far country come into their house. You see, he wanted to turn his treasures into trophies. Let me say this, number two. Uh, because of his letting the world in, his inheritance became idolatrous. It says all that your fathers have laid up to is going to be taken away. Can I say this? We are a debtor to a past generation. And we better understand that or we're going to lose everything that there is to be had for the next generation coming. You understand, I'm here today, listen, I'm here today because God saved a man, called him into the ministry, called him to preach, called him to plant a church over on Magnolia Avenue, called him to labor and to work in the ministry. I'm saved today because of his efforts, because of his labor. I'm saved today because I had a grandmama on both sides of my family, the grandmamas that loved God and saw to it that their kids was in church. I'm here today. I stand before you today because of two parents that loved God enough to that no excuse would be good enough going to have our kids in God's house involved in God's things. It's not just me. I owe a debt. I owe a debt. There's been some things laid up for me. And we think they'll always be there just like Hezekiah did. Listen to me this morning. You didn't have to drive through checkpoints to get to God's house. And that's because there's some folks that paid a price. Listen, you didn't have to smuggle your King James Bible under your arm to get into the house of God today. And that's because there's some folks that paid dear prices, both personally, both ecclesiastically, and militarily. And we just take for granted, my friend, that that's always going to be there. But there might come a day when if you want to meet with the believers that used to worship on Wall Ridge Road, you're going to have to go under the cover of darkness by hidden instructions to find a secret place where the authorities do not know about You say, it couldn't happen here. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. It could happen here. And we better realize that unless we get the world out of our lives and our families, it's coming quicker than it has to. All that our fathers have laid up, <laughs> all that our fathers, they're just going to be trinkets on the mantle of a Babylonian emperor. How sad will it be when the testimony is given? I don't know when it'll happen. I hope it won't happen. But I wonder what it's going to be like a hundred years if the Lord tarries this coming, or two hundred or three hundred, when they look back through history books, when Bible college students in another part of the world sit down and talk about the great religious efforts that used to take place in America, which is now a pagan and heathen and, and, and hedonistic country. You know why? Because we, we play footsie with the world. Because we compromised, because we held hands with the world. You say, it don't matter. It does matter. You say, that's not what it is. That is what it is. And we, listen, I, the, your way ain't working. Somebody say amen to that. Those that say that, those that say, it ain't a big deal. It's just got worse on your watch. It's just got worse on your watch. <laughs> I was watching something the other day, and they were parodying the closed-mindedness of, uh, of people back in the 40s. And I can't remember what it was. They had some woman, and she was talking about ladies being ladylike. You know, they used to talk about that. Talking about ladies being ladylike and men being like young men and everything. And this, this show or this movie or whatever it was I was watching was making fun of it. You know, they were like parodying it, right? <laughs> and, and that's what we've done now for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Guess what? We don't even know what bathroom to use anymore. I guess those folks was right. Amen. I guess there was something to be afraid of. I guess there was something to be cautious and leery of. Oh, but our inheritance, we treated it a light thing, and it's going to become idolatrous. You know the saddest part about it? 
Not only would his treasures become trophies and his inheritance become idolatrous, but watch this, his sons were going to become slaves. Princes! (laughs) Princes in Jerusalem would become eunuchs and slaves in Babylon. I'll tell you something. I know you don't believe this, but your kids don't mean as much to the world as they mean to you. Don't trust the world with them. Because they don't mean to the world what they mean to you. That's your precious cherubic little baby girl. That's your precious little baby boy. That's your child that you love, that you cherish, that you nurture, and you'd die. You'd fall on the sword in a heartbeat for them. That little grandchild that you love, that you pray for, that little niece or that little nephew that you labor long hours with God for, and that you're begging God to work in their life. Don't think that the world values them that way. Because it may be your little prince or your little princess, but they'll be a slave like all the rest when the world gets a hold of them. You know what occurred to me? You know what I thought about? I thought about generational bondage. Generational bondage. You know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you have known somebody who was drunk because their daddy was drunk? Known Known some woman that was promiscuous because her mama was promiscuous? There's some of them. I told you this is a hill country. Amen? And there's, listen, there's a lot of folks around here, they got some bootleggers in their genealogy. Somebody say amen to that? Well, I guess we shouldn't say amen to that, but it's true nonetheless. I got family that was rough, man. I do. I was listening to Mama talking about it the other day. She was giving prayer requests and she was talking about, about, you know, I'm trying to be careful. Well, no, I'm not going to be careful. I'm just going to be funny instead. And she was talking about, she was talking about family and she said, well, you know, this one's trailer broke down, but it's okay because that one got out of prison and this and that. And I thought, you know, boy, we really are a bunch of winners, ain't we? <laughs> you know, but I got rough family. You probably got some rough family. Let me tell you something. I thank God. You don't know this name. This name don't mean anything to you, but there's a woman by the name of Pauline Maddox. And Pauline Maddox, listen, uh, she was raised, and there was some godliness in her home, but she was one of them, and she really got a hold of God. And she really loved God, and she made up her mind. She laid up crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. You know, back then they couldn't do anything about it. And in her mid-twenties, she laid up crippled in a bed. She couldn't do much with her life, but she determined she was going to raise her kids right, and she was going to pray for them, and she was going to try to put God in their life every chance that she got. That, don't, that name don't mean nothing to you, but that name means something to me. You see, I didn't call her Pauline. I called her Nanny. And because of my nanny and because of the impact that she had in my mama's life, and I could talk about another woman by the name of Bonnie Weber. Uh, it's a, You know who that is, amen? <laughs> that's, uh, that's my daddy's mom. And I could talk about the influence that they've had. And I thought to myself, man, you know, we look at these people and you say, well, you know, they've come from a family of drunks. At some point, somebody wasn't a drunk and then became a drunk. At some point, somebody wasn't a drunk and became a drunk. At some point, somebody wasn't promiscuous, became promiscuous. At some point, somebody wasn't born in the far country. At some point, somebody went to the far country. I wonder if people look at our lives. I wonder if a hundred years from now, people look backwards. And, and, and if they'd look at my life, they'd say, you know, it was a family of godly people till it got to Toby Weber. Maybe they won't say that. You know what they might say? They might say it was a, it was a, it was a family of godly people till it got to Lawrence Weber. But you know, he was never raised in church. He wasn't raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And now, generation after generation, has been raised to walk in the evilness and wickedness of his ways. I wonder if it could ever be laid at your feet or my feet. 
The fact that generations have gone astray. And generations. You say, but preacher, I'm not living wrong. I'm not asking if you're living wrong. I'm asking if you've let Babylon in your house. You say, but preacher, I'm here this morning. Yeah, I know you're here this morning. Where, where are you at the rest of the time? Hey, man! It's going to take more than just once. That's all right. I didn't say that to make friends. I say that because we've got young families that need to hear it. It could be your family. It could be my family. It could be you or it could be me that people point back to and say, whew, boy, everything went wrong with them. And this is what really troubles me. And I don't, I've run out of time, so I'm just going to preach it anyway. Um, I want you to notice the indifference. The indifference that Hezekiah reflected. Now, it ought to have been when he was told this that it broke him. But let me tell you something. If you're in his shoes today, it ought to be when you were told this, it'd break you. But I wonder how we'll respond to it. I wonder if we'll respond like Hezekiah did. I want you to notice how he responded. Look down in verse number 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. Well, that's a good church answer, isn't it? That's a good, polite Sunday morning church answer. Good is the word of the Lord which is spoken unto us, right? Here's the problem. The word of the Lord was telling him his family was going to be in ashes. But when he's told that, I want you to notice that there's a lack of fear on his part. It ought to trouble us. It troubles me that it doesn't trouble us. It ought to break us. It ought to shake us. That it could be us that causes that. That these things, listen, these things matter. It ought to shake us. It ought to trouble us. When I think about my little child that I love with all of my heart, and I think of the idea of him someday in the far country, a slave in the hog pen, that ought to shake me. That ought to get my attention. But it didn't Hezekiah's. He wasn't afraid. <laughs> he wasn't afraid. We see his lack of fear, but I want you to notice his lack of faith. I want you to stop and think about this. When he was sick, he turned his face to the wall and prayed and begged God for deliverance. But when he was told that his children would become slaves, he said, good is the word of the Lord. So there's prayer when it affects him. There's prayer when it's a matter of the heart that beats in his chest and the lungs that, that, that breathe air. But when it's just something as trivial as his children, that's no big deal. We'll just take it in stride. God help us this morning that we're not more bothered by the compromise and worldliness that's in our lives and that's in our homes. God help us that we'll beg God to pay a bill, but we won't beg God to save our children. God help us that, listen, we'd move heaven and earth. We'd move heaven and earth to get them new clothes or vacation, to get them their, their latest toys. But we can't even be bothered to get them to God's house. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. You know why? Because there was a lack of foresight. It's interesting because I believe it's in Second Chronicles' account of this. There's an interesting exchange because the way it's worded, Hezekiah looks at Isaiah and he says, Good is the word of the Lord that's spoken unto us. And it doesn't say what Isaiah said back. But Hezekiah then asks the question. He says, Is it not good that there be peace in my days? 
I sort of imagine this. That whenever Isaiah says this, and he expects contrition, he expects repentance, he's looking for the same Isaiah that turned his face to the wall and begged God for 10, 15 more years. But when he tells him this, he just says, well, good is the word of the Lord. And I can just see that aged prophet's mouth drop open as he realizes what he's saying. And then you know what he says? He says, is it not good if there be peace in my days? Boy, that's the epitome, isn't it? That's a good commentary for this generation, isn't it? Hey, long as I got my phone, long as I got my car, long as I got my wardrobe, long as I got my whatever, put, hey, go ahead and just insert it in whatever it is. Long as I'm took care of, long as I'm okay, long as I've got what I want, then I'm all right. Nothing else matters. Oh boy, I'm glad I didn't have a mom and daddy that said that. God help me not to be a mom and daddy that says that about my child. God help me to be stirred. God help me to be broken over the worldliness that seeks to creep in at my front door.